and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm in the remote recording studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, we got to do something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I gathered together LARB film editor Annie Burke and film critic Kyle Turner for a special episode, which is our 2023 Oscars preview ahead of the award show, which is airing this Sunday on ABC. What were some of your favorite movies from this last year? You know, I didn't get to see a lot of movies this last year because of the baby. So I am, this year's a little bit of a wash for me, I think. I didn't get to see a lot of the movies. I saw Tar, I saw The Banshees of Inisherin. Yeah, or... which my husband calls The Banshees of Ed Sheeran. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a better <laughs> title. But I think that's about it. I like Tar a lot, but we already talked about that. You know, it's like yeah. I'm sad to say that neither Kyle or Annie were quite as taken with Tar as you and I were. But, but did you talk about the interiors? Did you tell them about the interiors? I gave them all the pitches, Medea, but they just were not biting. Well, they, that's they did crazy. agree. They did agree that the interiors were quite beautiful, and that it is a a movie that is is beautiful to watch. Um, tailoring, also, yeah, <laughs> the tailoring alone, yeah. What else do you want from a movie on <laughs> if it's not interiors and expert tailoring? Well, that's I think we got at some point to character. Consensus. You want character and plot? That it might. I don't think so. <laughs> I think we got to some consensus that it will likely win, or it could, and maybe should win for cinematography for all the reasons you're saying. It just was beautiful to look at. We also there was lots of love for the Banshees of Inisherin. Lots of love for everything, everywhere, all at once. Though Kyle wasn't quite as exuberant as Annie and I were about it. And both of them actually convinced me to just suck it up and watch The Fablemans, which Kyle explains was just terribly marketed as like, it seems schmaltzy in the marketing. And he's like, it's actually a very complex and very thoughtful movie. And Annie also was like quite moved by that movie. So that is back on my list after I've been avoiding it for most of the season. Well, let me tell you what I think the Fableblends doesn't have. Lux Berlin interiors. And so... (laughs) No apartments that we want to live in for the rest of our lives. Yeah, if it's not aspirational, I don't want to see it. That's my motto. Well, we'll get to that and so many, many, many more movies in our discussion right now. Let's do it. I'm very excited to have two special guests with me on the line today for our very first Oscar preview special, which is something I've wanted to do for a long time. And I'm so excited to be joined today first by Annie Burke, LARB's film editor and the author of Their Own Best Creations, Women Writers in Post-War America. She's also a host at the New Books Network podcast. Annie's essays and criticism have appeared in the AV Club, Little White Lies, Ms. Magazine, Literary Hub, and The Washington Post. On the line with me as well today is the marvelous Kyle Turner. Kyle is a Brooklyn-based queer writer and film critic, and his writing on film, queerness, and culture has been featured in W Magazine, The Village Voice, Slate, GQ, and The New York Times. Kyle is also the author of The Queer Film Guide, 100 Films That Tell LGBTQIA Plus Stories, which is coming out May 16th from Smith Street Books and Rizzoli. I'm so thrilled to have both of you on today to talk about this year's movies and the upcoming Academy Awards. So without further ado, let's just get into it. Let's start with 
a little bit about what you thought about this year in film. Were there any kind of unique trends or anything that stuck out to you? Sure, but this is one of the harder questions, I think, because I am trying to remember when it became a little bit less predictable what an Oscar Oscar movie, air quotes, means. It's felt like at some point in my later youth, not my early youth, there was a question about whether people were watching the Oscars and there became more interest in trying to get sort of blockbuster movies in with the best pictures. But I remember a time when all of the Oscar movies were Oscar bait. And now to see Top Gun Maverick on there, it's not a new thing, but it does feel like it's a trend that's here to stay, which is kind of putting together women talking and Top Gun Maverick as though those movies, as though comparing them for best film really makes sense, like as though we would be ever using the same criteria to look at those two kinds of movies. So that's something I do think that with movies like Everything Everywhere All at Once and Top Gun, and I have to admit, I haven't seen Avatar yet. I haven't been able to. It does feel like maybe this year, all these years into the pandemic, at least some of the Academy was looking for a good time. But I have to say that one thing about the Oscars is that it's, I won't say that Individual choices might be a surprise, but on the whole, the kind of balance of crowd pleasers and art films, who gets snubbed and who is a shoe-in always feels very similar, like, you know, like the tide ebb and flow. I think the Oscars, you can sort of set your clock by. Yeah, I hear that. What about you, Kyle? I think that's especially true after 2008 when... The Dark Knight was not nominated for Best Picture. They started changing the rules as far as how many Best Picture nominees there could be. There was a change in like the voting strategy. I am unable to remember exactly how they changed the way that the votes would turn out. But after 2008, the votes would then be allocated such that there could be anywhere between 5 and 10. It wasn't locked 10, but it was between 5 and 10. And then there were a couple years where it was specifically 10 so that there could be more crowd pleasers. And then I think they've brought it back to being between five and 10. And that has always been an effort to get more viewers who aren't cinephiles, who aren't movie buffs as a way to garner higher ratings for the actual telecast and to dissuade the public of thinking that the Oscars are are merely industry awards for Hollywood patting itself on the back. And I think especially in the last year or so, they've been focusing on getting enough of the bigger blockbuster movies that signal like the return of movie going of movie going as this like thing that we do as a collective in the theaters and so that's why we have like top gun i think and even maybe elvis as well even though uh, the oscars love a biopic but something like dune last year which doesn't seem like an obvious choice for best picture i think is was clearly a decision or or something to assert the notion that movie going in with capital m was making a return. As far as like trends that I noticed last year, I will say that I was honestly, I felt very frustrated by a lot of the movies that I watched last year, even by some of the things that I, that weren't nominated, but got a lot of critical accolades. I felt movies were sort of in there to use the parlance of our youth these days, mid, a lot of movies were mid to me, like Avatar, I don't think is very good. It's very much a movie that you like take in a very large edible and space out to. Elvis is a PowerPoint Wikipedia page done by someone who has snorted a line of pixie sticks 
Top Gun Maverick is, you know, an ode to the way in which people used to make Hollywood propaganda and propaganda for the United States military. Triangle of Sadness is the same joke for three hours. A trend that I notice is that we seem so starved for a level of quality with the things that we're consuming because we've spent the last couple of years simply consuming quote unquote content that anything that hits like the bare minimum of this is slightly above average, we're willing to praise and suggest is much better than it may actually be. I think that's fair. I I think Top Gun, I think that is its own like industry nomination because I think there's a lot, I mean, you guys have read the same news that I do. It's like, there's a lot of feeling, I think in the industry that Top Gun had this halo effect on getting people back into movie theaters and the idea that it's like, this could save or revamp the big budget blockbuster. It is very nostalgic, which the Academy also loves, you know, and (laughs) the industry also loves churning out like old IP in a fresh new way, which for what it's worth, I think Top Gun actually did do reasonably well. You know, again, it's not my, certainly not my favorite movie of the year, but for what it was, I thought it was, you know, passable. I did think this year was kind of interesting to me, at least in terms of, and you don't necessarily see this actually reflected in any of the nominations, but a real renaissance in like the horror genre. And I don't know if this might be tied to some of the like the starving for freshness that like Kyle is talking about, but movies like Barbarian, which I actually thought from just like a craft or actually script perspective. I mean, this movie resets itself three times and you're still there for every single turn, which is amazing to me, just from that kind of perspective. Pearl, which I should admit I have not yet seen, but I have heard so many wonderful things about. And I it's now fine. It's only fine. I'm obsessed with Mia Goth. I really just love everything about her look. I mean, then- Mia Goth, right? Like she also has that movie X. Exactly. Yes. um, I wonder if she this is setting her up. I was thinking about that with those movies, with her performances, maybe setting her up to be the next Florence Pugh midsummer to making the jump. Oh, I can see that. That would be really nice for her. Uh, Mixed feelings about the Shia LaBeouf connection, but very nice for Mia Goth. But I also not like those movies don't get nominated. Jordan Peele's Nope didn't get nominated. And it does start to feel like there's that separation between I don't want to say there's always been a separation between like the true cinephiles and like the Academy, but this sense of like maybe the most interesting stuff that the Oscar says that it's about innovations and, you know, new things in film isn't really that interested in looking at new things in film. When you think about Top Gun Maverick as being the thing Steven Spielberg said, thank you, Tom Cruise, for saving the movies. I hate to spoil anything, but I feel like I'm going to do just a tiny spoiler for Top Gun without too much. When you see Tom Cruise's face in the snow and then his eye opens, I feel like that's Hollywood right now. They're like, I'm Tom Cruise. I'm in the snow, but I'm not giving Miles Teller a fucking thing like right now. Like it's not interesting. Teller's turn yet. It's still Tom Cruise's turn. I don't really care who's starting it, to be honest. Like, I'm uh, neutral on that point. But I will say that I feel like maybe it's neither. Um, food for thought. Maybe it's Mia Goth's turn. I don't know. But it's never really. It's never really me. It's Tom Cruise's turn or it's Miles Tedler's turn in this in this narrative. Is it the father or the son? Is it old school or new? But that eye opening in the snow, honestly, I think that's supposed to be a cheer moment. It just made me laugh and laugh. But I was like, Tom Cruise is not handing over anything. 
He's like, I know that these are about handing over franchises about like, you know, Bruce Willis flying himself into the sun, but not today. Like <laughs> <laughs> you can you can pry old Hollywood from my cold dead hands. Yeah, I think so. And it's so interesting that we are still experiencing that kind of resistance to change a little bit because in the last year they invited the largest number of new Academy members in the last year to join the voting body. And that was supposed to function as a corrective for like what the votes would look like, what the nominations would look like. And I think we understand that that is that has not necessarily changed as dramatically as one may have hoped. In the same way that like the sight and sound poll that happens every 10 years didn't like necessarily rock the boat when like a there were some new things, but it was mostly sort of very similar to the old canon. The other thing I want to talk to you both about is before we get into talking about our favorite films and even better, the films we hated this year, is that kind of larger changes in the industry, which we've been talking about a little bit, that may have impacted films this year. You know, for me, at least one of those was the rise of streamers. You know, that's been a thing that's been going on for a number of years now. But, you know, I want to call out that Netflix continues to make its presence known in the Academy, including with All Quiet on the Western Front, which, again, while not necessarily my cup of tea as a movie, you know, I appreciate all of its technical virtuosity, but it seems sure to at least take some awards this year. And that's like no small thing for, you know, what before was kind of disregarded as a streamer or content farm by most of the industry. I am surprised that there isn't more representation or more material evidence that streamers are impacting the Oscars this year, especially. I think that the nominations that we see today are, again, a, a desire to reassert the power that going to movies as an activity and experiencing the spectacle in the theater has, because Almost all of the Best Picture nominees, I think, were primarily consumed at the theater, possibly with the exception of All Quiet Western Front, which does seem like a nomination that appealed to like maybe a slightly older demographic. There might be a name recognition as far as it being an adaptation and a remake and it being a war film. The exception might be something like Anna de Armas and Blonde, which was a Netflix release and was not released in theaters outside of major metro areas. So I think other than that, I'm really surprised that there weren't more examples from other Netflix films or other Hulu stuff because there were there was definitely a small campaign going for Emma Thompson for Good Luck to you, Leo Grand. I think the other Netflix film, I was just going to echo your point and attribute you, Kyle, even though anyone listening would have heard you say this is really like a victory lap or return to the cinemas. The movie to me that sticks out as like something different, but did not get the kind of nominations that I think it could have. I won't say deserves because as we talk about what we really think of the Oscars, I'm not sure that like deserving and worthiness is really whether mm -hmm. the institution warrants where it's like deserving and worthy, but whatever would be Glass Onion, which I feel like almost everyone watched. I mean, I'm going to project and be like, everyone watched it with their family on Christmas, but a lot of people watched it with their families on Christmas. It's a kind of like for your family, if they like can take, you know, on a scale from one to 10, they can handle like a five or six in terms of edge. This isn't Miracle on 34th Street. This is not, but it's also not, we're not watching one of Mia Goth's horror films at Christmas either. It's funny. It's light, but it's got, you know, a critique 
of the contemporary moment and the Elon Musks and the Donald Trumps. I mean, I loved that it was at home and I could watch it then. But I do feel like Glass Onion was, it was, I'm going to sound like Harry Styles. It was big. It was a movie and it felt like a movie, but it did, the way I consumed it sort of felt like it was a, a long form precursor to Poker Face and like that Ryan Johnson is becoming like the king of content. And I'm I'm totally 100% on board with that. But I also wonder if, um, you know, that stepped on the movie's toes a little bit, that it only got screenplay, that maybe if we thought of it more of as a big cinematic explosion, that maybe Janelle Monet could have gotten a nomination, things like that, that it just did, it felt too much like TV because for too many of us, it was TV. And since this is an LA Review of Books podcast, I would direct you to J.D. Connor's recent article on the, on the site about why did Netflix pay, I think like, what was it, $450 million for the Knives Out franchise? I won't spoil that. I will spoil Top Gun, but I won't spoil that. But it's definitely worth reading if we're thinking about that's a lot of money to pay for a franchise that I hesitate to call it like a film franchise even. It's five. Uh, you do? Okay. You don't? Kyle loves this movie. He loves the series. I love Glass Onion. Okay. I thought that came through. I did love it. Yeah. I'm less of a huge fan of Knives Out and Glass Onion as films in and out there on their own terms and more fascinated with how they are working within this lineage of like star-studded whodunits that were popular-ish in the 70s, 80s, very much the Agatha Christie Dane. And what's interesting is that Glass Onion is also a tricky example in as much as Ryan Johnson brokered a deal with Netflix to release it in theaters for a week the month before it was going to drop on Netflix. And he apparently fought very, very hard for that because Netflix was very much against that. And so people did have the opportunity to see that in theaters, although you're right, Annie, in that probably more people watched it on Netflix. And it is being sort of fashioned as something that you sort of consume a little bit more a little bit more passively than one may may have in the 70s. But what's interesting to me is that if this is existing as sort of a cousin to Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile and whatnot, the thing about Murder on the Orient Express is that it garnered Albert Finney an Oscar nomination for playing Hercule Poirot, and it got Ingrid Bergman her third Academy Award for playing a Swedish maid. And when she got it, she was like, I don't know if I deserve this, but thanks. So it is kind of interesting that... that these movies are reconfiguring our idea of glamour in an ensemble piece. And yet the actual film industry, as much as they are willing to like make those movies, they're not necessarily willing to accommodate them as like the kind of tentpole movie that they used to be or that they could function as. So I think it's compelling that like Glass Onion only gets one nomination and yet it is so it's baking so hard on like trying to translate a contemporary idea of what these movies would look like and what this kind of like fancy glamorous ensemble piece can exist as. Let me um, return back to something that kind of Annie was was teasing out, but we've been talking around a little bit, which is this question about kind of do we still care about the Oscars? I mean, on the one hand, of course, why? Like, you know, we love nothing more than talking and taking down or talking up or taking down the Oscars. And, you know, everybody loves the ability to kind of play along at home. But this, you know, I guess this is a way of also backing into the Andrea Riseborough of it all is kind of what does it mean, these nominations, right? You know, Annie, you've said, for example, and I agree with you that many of them were incredibly safe, and very predictable, you know, and that it, as they say in the industry, what it's not so much like the meritocratic, like which was the best in film, but really which had the best campaign or a bunch of other considerations. So kind of how should we think about the Oscars? 
I mean, I love like so much of mass culture. I love it, but I don't respect it. Um, and that is how I feel about a lot. See, like for me, the Oscars were a thing that I liked everything around the Oscars. I liked the Oscar pool and the Oscar party and just the opportunity to get together with people. I mean, obviously a lot of the people around me, because I'm a film scholar, whatever you want to say, writer, they like movies too, but not everyone. And not everyone likes to talk about them as much as I do. And so it was nice to get people together. And it was just a starting point. You didn't always end up talking about even the movies that were nominated. You just talked about the movies you liked and you looked at people's clothes and that was all good. I cannot say that I have noticed that I sometimes feel like I need to watch Oscar movies before the Oscars. And I don't know what this says, because after the Oscars, I probably won't want to watch them anymore and no one will ever talk about them again. That's not always true, but there are a lot of best pictures that I think like were very of the moment and do not necessarily feel like they're things that we go back to a decade later. And I don't know what that says, except that it's sort of that the Oscars are a kind of barometer about what the industry thinks they're doing right. And the fact that they're constantly course correcting, they think, you know, one year they think Green Book, that's our future, right? It's like, no, not right, not right. And that was what was so funny and revealing about the La La Land Moonlight mix up, right? Was the sense of like, we don't know what you think the future of movies is either. And you don't know because either one could have been in that envelope and it seems equally plausible. So that's kind of where I am with the Oscars and I miss having parties, but we're not in a party moment of our, I mean, I don't want that many people in my house. I'm sure that it would be a super spreader. So to that point, like, I feel like I have to develop a new relationship to the Oscars. What do you think, Kyle? Well, I completely agree with you. I think the, at this point, the Oscars are only worth paying attention to if you are dedicated to watching their own self-mythology sort of fumble over the course of time. I like the what you said about, like, we don't know what the future of film is, do you? And sort of, like, passing it off to the viewers. But there are so few viewers watching the Oscars, it's just like, we don't know either. And so it's worth it in that sort of, like, historical lens, or through that historical lens. And other than that, like, um, and it's also sort of interesting to see, like, how they're fighting for a level of relevancy in a culture where like where it seems clearer and clearer that awards don't matter as much to younger audiences in the first place that everything is niche and nothing is niche at the same time and they'll be able to find and proclaim xyz thing that was even probably popular at the time of its original release as like a thing that should be given special attention to like people i am a babylon fan but there were people who were saying like in 20 years, Babylon's going to be thought of as a masterpiece. And like Babylon got released two months ago, maybe cool it a little bit. My re- specific relationship to the Oscars is that I, the first telecast that I ever watched was the year that Crash won, which even then, as I, I think I was 11, even then I thought it was kind of ridiculous, but I was happy for Ang Lee. And then 2011 was the year I gave up on caring about the Oscars and beyond a professional capacity because Kirsten Dunst was not nominated for Best Actress for Melancholia. And it's just like, you people are beyond help. I don't know why I give you my time or energy. And as the internet has also sort of amplified some of these conversations, some of which are, I think, worth having and some of which sort of turn into these reductive camps in which people argue over for one thing over another in an antagonistic and ad hominem way. 
I think it's interesting watching that happen, but like not really fun to be a part of it. So at this point, beyond occasionally covering them in a professional capacity, my go-to is to sort of look at the uh, nominations the day they come out, forget them a half hour later, and then by the time Oscar night comes, I'm like, oh, this thing was nominated. I'm delighted for them. I want to come back to your point, Eric, though, about Andrea Riseborough, but I feel like I have an anticlimactic answer, which is that in terms of legitimacy, I think that anyone who is complaining about legitimacy probably doesn't understand how the Academy nominations work. And I say that as someone who didn't care and doesn't really 100% know how they work either, because I'm sure there's a lot of backroom deals and like everyone should just be hyper aware of that. And that even the things we do now are just probably the tip of the iceberg in terms of the kinds of like tit for tat dealings that happen to get attention on certain performances and not on others. And I do think, you know, I haven't seen to Leslie. That's true. I haven't seen it. I'm sure she does a great job. I think it's a very, it's a shame that certain nominations didn't happen this year, particularly Viola Davis with The Woman King. But I also think that the system that nominates people isn't a perfectly fair system, even when there's no controversy. It's never particularly completely fair. And I think that it might be worth looking at how those nominations work. But it did feel a little bit like there was an element of like, internet rage happening around it then it was like let's slow down like how do you think nominations happen the oscars don't count up other nominees like so i felt a little strange about that i also feel like in general i kind of worry sometimes about actors when they get nominated because there is the oscar curse for people like marcia gay harden it doesn't necessarily set you up for more success can price you out of where you are the story of barkhad abdi with captain phillips we watch all of these campaigns happen and we don't necessarily know studios were not paying for his campaigning. He went, he was like getting favors and taking out debt basically to sustain this campaign. So that's not to get super dark about it, but the Oscars are not, getting an Oscar is not always the best thing that has ever happened to everyone, even if it's the best thing that's ever happened to them when they're standing on that stage. I think it's in Andrea Riseborough's best interest to not win this year after all of this. I think that's fair, yeah. I agree. And I think it becomes more complicated when we talk about how the Oscars have the potential, allegedly, to rewrite a lot of these institutional wrongs by these nominations and by these wins, which is not to say that underrepresentative or marginalized groups shouldn't be up for contention, but that we should consider that that may not necessarily be the answer as far as real institutional change within the industry. Yes, I think that I remember reading all the stuff around it and it was like, well, who's going to come out if Andrea Riseborough's in? Should it be Anna de Armas? And I was like, I think we've gotten away from I think we've gotten away from it because this one category is not going to solve the fact that like white mm-hmm. is the default in Hollywood and mm-hmm. institutional with myth making and winning. Though that is one of Hollywood's favorite myths about itself. I mean, I think then that's the other. Fix, yeah. It can fix itself. Hashtag Oscar so white. Oh, or that it both takes, you know, a perfect example of this is that what was that Netflix show? Hollywood. Yeah. Which oh. like literally could only have been written by somebody in Hollywood that would believe that you can just swap a couple of roles around, throw on that black and white gloss. And then suddenly it's like. Oh, see, we've changed. We've stonewalled. It's so wild. And to both of your points, you know, I think that an academy that could put something like, let's say, Tar or Everything Everywhere All at Once in the same category as Avatar for Best Picture is like already showing 
itself, right? You know, like that's already chaotic AF. And to the same point, you know, I feel that you ever log in, I don't know if this is your your setup, but you know, we do a lot of sometimes account streaming account sharing. And when you walk into somebody else's profile, it's like you've walked into some totally different world. Like if I look at my like brother's account on Netflix, I'm like, wait, what is this? Is is everything the same? You know, even though we're we're very similar in many ways, our tastes are wildly different. And I feel like this year's Oscar nominations also feel a little bit like you just walked into a bunch of different accounts and you're like, how do these things sit together coherently? And so in that sense, you know, I feel that it kind of is like the Oscar showing that there isn't some grand plan or like some meritocratic universe in which like, you know, all of these best films are floating up to the top for consideration. And at the same time, it it's not chaotic enough to get the attention of people who don't generally care about the Oscar. That's fair too, yeah. Yeah, it's controlled chaos, maybe, yeah, or predictable yeah. chaos. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We're speaking with special guests Annie Burke and Kyle Turner for our special 2023 Oscars preview episode. Now, back to that conversation. Well, let's start out, if we've been talking a little bit darkly of late, let's move into something kind of brighter. Like, what were some films that you guys just loved this year? Well, I mentioned Glass Onion, a movie that didn't get nominated. That was India's choice not to put it up. But RRR was one of my favorite movies of the year. It was just beginning to end, a good time, super moving, super funny, did everything I wanted to do. And I didn't have any expectations going in. Except thinking, oh, this is three hours. I'm going to be up really late. And I loved it. Loved it. And, you know, I am an unapologetic, everything, everywhere, all at once fan. I loved it. I loved it. Um, I know there's been like a backlash and a backlash to the backlash. And everybody went like mean something. But, you know, about the campaigning. Are you moved by the campaigning? Do you find the campaigning very campaigny? I don't care. I loved the movie when I was watching it. And that's how I feel about that movie. I think... My only sort of, and I think this is a barely controversial opinion about everything everywhere all at once, is I think that Stephanie Hsu's performance stands out as supporting in a way that I do not believe that Jamie Lee Curtis should get it over her. I don't. I think that Stephanie Hsu's performance was more special to me, but I I just thought it was great. Yeah. What about you, Kyle? Okay. I'm not going to be like the everything everywhere hater. I thought it was fine. I thought it was good. I think that a lot of its humor seems very derived from like a very hetero masculinist point of view and it betrays itself in several of the jokes and several of the bits in a way that I don't care for especially because it comes into tension it's very fraught tension with the not declaration but the feelings that it wants to have about queerness and I think that is worth observing but it's not the worst thing I've ever seen it's like fine it's a fine movie but the movies that I really loved last year included all the beauty and the bloodshed which is the film directed by Laura Poitras about Nan Golden and her work with regards to the opioid crisis and the activism against the Sackler family, as well as Nan Golden's work more broadly as a photographer and artist. I thought it was like a really, really beautiful portrait of the marriage of art and direct action and community and politics. One of the things that really struck me about that film is that during all the sessions where it's ostensibly just a profile of Nan Golden, she, not to, this sounds like an annoying way to phrase this, but she effectively decenters herself and makes it very much about the people she was around and the people who inspired her and shaped her work and 
gave her reasons to create work. And I think that was really impressive and, and really quite beautiful. I really loved Return to Seoul, the film by Davy Cho, which had been submitted by Cambodia as their international film nomination or entry, but did not get nominated. And that is about a young French woman who's a, a Korean-born adoptee, and she goes back to Seoul to to answer unanswered questions, but then realizes that those that is not necessarily the trajectory or the approach that will effectively like give her the most catharsis. So I thought that was really good. As a child of adoption, I am contractually obligated to care about movies that are about adoption. Really loved The Banshees of Inishirin by Mark McDonough, which I think was his his strongest home in a really long time. Love that. Love Petit Mama, the Slane's Yama film about the two little girls who meet in the woods. And there's a little bit of like a sci-fi realism in there, which is fun. And I really loved Please Baby Please, which is a gender queer noir directed by Amanda Kramer. And it like really goes, it goes for it. Andrea Riceborough is in that one. And she, say what you will about her nomination, but that Andrea Riceborough has been putting in the work for many, many years. Even if this is a career nomination, it's, I'm glad that like she's getting a little bit of recognition, I guess, even if it's coming out of like a very weird time or a sort of precarious time in terms of the discussions around institutional racism, et cetera, et cetera. But she's very good in Please Baby Please. Cola Scola is also amazing in it. It's colorful and it really embraces a very, I think, thorough and thoughtful idea of what camp aesthetics looks like in a contemporary cultural landscape. So... Mm. Excited about this. I mean, yeah, mine were I seconding Annie's love for everything, everywhere, all the time, even though I did feel the schmaltz at the center of it. I felt like a little like, ugh, like, does it really have to be about just falling in love? Like, to me, that felt like there were so many things that were very fresh and interesting. What I think that movie has going for it, and which I think can carry it across the finish line at a number of these categories for both the actors and the film and the directors is that each actor basically got to show a wide range of performance ability because of the nature of that storytelling, right? So you got to see Jamie Lee Curtis or Stephanie Sue or obviously Michelle Yao as varieties of themselves that allowed you to see an incredible range and dynamism. And it felt just, it was a pleasure to watch from beginning to end. Again, for me, until the schmaltz in the very last fifth of it, where the schmaltz level just became too high. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I'm here for this. I also did love, even though I understand why many people do not, including almost everyone I went to see it with, I very much love Tar. This is mostly about a visual spectacle. I know that there are problems with like the story. I know that it's not totally that moving, but... I could have lived in those clothes and that gorgeous Berlin apartment and the studio as well forever. It was just gorgeous. So similar kind of a single man vibe there where it's like, it's very pretty, you know, and like maybe the claim that it wants to make or the things that it's wrangling with, it doesn't always necessarily pull off. So I get that part of it. I also, even though I feel very silly saying this, I loved Megan because it felt like exactly the movie I wanted to see when I saw it. And I don't know if it means that Alison Williams <laughs> showed herself to be a good actress or if she was a bad actress in the right role, but I was there for the campiness of it and the kind of like the way that it it felt like a great new horror movie. And obviously it was also 
very niche in terms of I think every gay person I know was obsessed with that film or at least with like the viral videos about it on TikTok. But yeah, those were my, you know, I had others. I I did like with respect. I understand the the moves against it. Triangle of Sadness, too long, could have been edited. You were very right, Kyle, that it's the same like three jokes told over and over and over again. But the power dynamics in the last third, I did think were interesting to think about, like what happens when those things get inverted. And then Close, I really thought was beautiful. I love that it was very tender and felt very honest. And even though it's a tragic queer story-ish, it felt fresh. For those playing at home, just for the record, Eric did have a Megan background on Zoom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm pro-Megan. I think Megan is very good. And I do think Allison Williams is a good, good actor. I think Allison Williams knows what she's about. Like, I would do like a triptych of Marnie and Girls, Get Out, and Megan. It's like, I mean, I don't want to like go too far and be like, she's a star, but she's a star in the old way of like when they had contract players and stars and we knew what they were good at. Allison Williams, whoever her people are, however much she's paying them, she should maintain paying them. Yes. She has a surprising level of self-awareness, which I'm delighted by. And she was like one of the only people in the quote unquote Nepo baby conversation that was just like, yeah, I... Like, I have a lot of privilege. I don't know why it's a big deal to admit that. So I, not to give a white woman too many cookies, but I am, I'm pleased that she is able to sort of play on her persona. Close. I don't know what is wrong with you, Eric. (laughs) You did not like. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but I do think that it suffers greatly from like not earning like its big narrative turn. Yes, without giving away spoilers, yes, there is. It becomes a different kind of movie about not even halfway through, right? It's like about a third. It's like 30 minutes in. The first 15, 20 minutes are really exceptional. And I think are able to detail a level of intimacy and tactility in relationships and in those young dynamics in a very breathtaking way. But then... In terms of fleshing out those characters and dynamics for the turn to make sense, I don't think it does. I feel like he's the new Xavier Dolan in a way, in that he is really interested in a particular mode of filmmaking and a particular like melodramatic tendency. And although they have very different stylistic identities, I think they are still going for like a level of histrionic impulses that don't make sense unless you have stacked the deck well enough that it does. I never thought about Xavier Dolan's work that way, but now that I think about it, that is basically how Heartbeats works. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's interesting. Let's uh, shift topics to what films did you find disappointing or did you straight up hate this year? Start with you, Annie. I'm sorry, I didn't like Tar. I respect. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) I think that it creates a world. It really creates a world. And then I was like, why am I in this? <laughs> Can I get out of this world? I don't want to be in this world anymore. I just think that, and I know it's really, I'm trying to disentangle the film from the discourse because the discourse is really exhausting. And I think I like the movie more than I like the discourse. But I also think that as soon as the movie was over, I was like, ugh. And I left my phone upstairs. And like, I'm kind of sorry and kind of glad because I probably would have just drifted away from the movie a little bit because 
I don't know. And this is also so I found Kate Blanchett's performance to be very mannered. Yes. Oh, I could see that. Yes, that's fair. You're making all these actor choices. I can see you do it with your hands and like with your twitchy and like you're capturing something. And, you know, to give Kate Blanchett an out out of that, Lydia Tarr is also a performer as is Kate Blanchett. But it's still like a little bit like an actor bingo card. You're watching her make all the choices. Or I was felt that a little bit. So I didn't watch Tarr. I don't want to watch it again. But I did pay $20 to own it, which is maybe the worst part of all <laughs> of all of this. That's a true crime. Own it. Yeah, because I wanted to see it and it was only for sale at the point where I wanted to see it. It felt so urgent at the time I have to see Tar. And then, okay, so I really enjoyed The Fablemans and I really enjoyed it. You know, like I turned the lights off and I didn't let anybody come interrupt me during this movie. I felt like it was like really, you know, I really like didn't treat it like the way I treat too many things when I'm like, oh, I'm short on time. I'll watch an hour here and an hour. Like I really immersed myself in The Fablemans and I so enjoyed it. So I did like it. I wondered afterward if that movie would be anything if I didn't know who that boy grows up to be. And I wondered what that means about that movie. And I just thought, I have you two. We have a brain trust here. Because I think of other movies like, you know, Bergman films. And like, I know that that kid is Bergman at the beginning with his hand up to his mother and persona. Like, I know that's in there, but I don't need to know that to follow this movie or to feel something when I'm watching it. But if if The Fablemans was by a newcomer and I didn't know all the movies that young Fableman was about to grow up and make, what would that movie be? What would that movie be? And does that mean that it's not as great as it felt when I was watching it? And I felt like I was in the presence of, you know this throwback return to great Hollywood, you know? I loved The Fablemans. I am of the opinion that The Fablemans still works if you don't know it's Steven Spielberg's autofiction. I still think it makes for a really good movie, a really fantastic film about like what it means to capture an image and manipulate it and see how it can reveal parts of yourself or parts of your family that you didn't know about finding the language or finding a tool that you don't know how to control. I think that's a good point. So I still really liked it. I do think the last shot, though, when it moves up really. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, well, it felt a little like the Animaniacs, the cartoon. I, I watched it in the 90s that he produced. Steven Spielberg presents the Animaniacs. Like that move like on the lot and the camera's like jerky movement upward. And you're like, this is Animaniacs. And I was ready for another three hours of Animaniacs after that. I was like, bring them in. Let's do a crossover episode. But they didn't. I have to admit, I have not seen The Fablemans. And in part, that was because Paul Dano and Michelle Williams are just not going to drag me to the theater. They just aren't. Like, I'm just, it's like watching, you know, bread soak up milk. But the other thing is, it was one of those, to me, The Fablemans, and I will see it, especially after hearing these reviews from both of you. It just felt like such a, oh my God, I've already seen this movie. I've seen this movie a million times. It's the kind of movie that Hollywood makes about itself. And it's like its own, you know, navel gazy self-glorification. But what I'm getting is that that is not what in fact happened. But, I really know. No, I don't think it is. Then to me, this is a trailer cutting problem because I definitely yeah. also felt that the trailer gave me a movie that I did not want to see. I think the marketing campaign for The Fable Women shot itself in the foot a little bit and the way that they were sort of pitching the movie because I think it is way more interesting than a film about old Hollywood and a film about filmmakers, blah, 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 blah. I think it's really a much more compelling film about like family secrets. And I think it is a film about the fact that we are ultimately relegated to relitigate our most 
formative childhood traumas over and over and over again until we die. That's one reading. That wasn't my reading exactly, but I do think that what I we would certainly agree on, there's a cynical, the sentimentality that film snobs, I'm saying that because I don't want to say cinephiles again, um, that people <laughs> hold against Steven Spielberg, I feel like, is missing from this movie. There is a darkness there. There's a kind of cynicism that he's like, that, again, I feel like you need to know Spielberg and his work to read this into the film, but like the sense of like, yeah, I'm great at this, but I'm only great at this because I'm a little broken. Like, yeah. something a little wrong with me. And that's yeah. the reason that I can do this. Uh-huh. Um, and that is definitely a darker feeling than most of the movies that I watch of his. I feel like a close cousin is like, catch me if you can. Like this feeling of like, oh, like the people who can put on a good show. The reason is because like, you don't want to see the one that curtains come down. Like, it's no good. Great performance from Judd Hirsch. What did you think of Michelle Williams, though, Kyle? Michelle Williams was making choices, and I uh, I was on board for them. <laughs> I was on board. I'm not going to pretend that they are the choices that I necessarily would have wanted her to make, but I was kind of in the bag. I was, like, sobbing throughout the movie, revisiting some of Spielberg's movies after seeing it. Like, I, I rewatched AI, Artificial Intelligence, also an adoption movie that I'm contractually obligated to care about. But there's this one line where, in The Fail Women's, where Michelle Williams says something like, oh, he's trying to recreate the train crash that he saw when we took him to see Greatest Show on Earth because he wants to get control over the thing that he most fears. And then rewatching AI, I was like, oh my God, your parents messed you up so bad. Thank you. I just wanted to know because I felt like for a while, Michelle Williams felt like she was a lock for this award. And some of that just kind of, I don't know, I'm just not hearing that anymore. And I'm not feeling that sense of like, she's got it in the bag. I don't think she's got it. She does not. No, no, no. It's, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong to think that was ever, but I felt like when the movie hit, it was like, oh, and Michelle Williams, which I don't know, Steven Spielberg held the door open for my dad once. So I want to say in respect, very nice man. But like his background is not so dissimilar from my background, ethnically speaking. And so I feel like Michelle Williams, I was watching her and I was like, you remind me of my grandmother, but also you kind of remind me of how I make my grandmother sound, which means like, could I... I may not play all of it. I don't know if I could pull off the nightgown scene, but like certainly some of it, if you know what I mean. A little bit of stereotype felt like leeching in a little bit. Still respect the hell out of Michelle Williams. Gwen Verdon, completely perfect Uh in the role. This one, not as much for me. I can't speak to that experience, but I was with friends and who can, and they were both on the fence. They were like, I see this, it's happening Maybe it's terrible. Maybe it's brilliant. We can't decide. But I was happy to have seen the movie. And I did find her performance quite moving, even in, except for the moments where it did seem like she was like just doing like a goy playing Jewish. So I see this. It's happening. I feel like that's yes. a good like tagline for a lot of Oscar bait performances. Be like, I yes. see it. I see it. It's happening. You're doing yes. it. Like, yes, yes. You're doing yeah. the thing you want to do. That's how I feel about Kate Blanchett and Tar. And that, like, I also thought it was extremely mannered. And there is maybe a little bit of narrative justification in the film as far as why that may be. With that being said, even when everything falls apart, I still think that there's a level to which Kate Blanchett is technically perfect in an entirely unsurprising way. And that was extremely disappointing to me because it's like, I know you can do this. I know you can do this very well, but I want you to surprise me. I want you to go further with it. I felt that way about the film more broadly. It was just not weird enough for me. It was exactly 
the kind of austere, like faux new Romanian wave kind of character study. And I don't think it played with the subjectivity of the character that compellingly. I'm going to bracket three films that I found utterly disappointing, but I knew what I would hate, which is Avatar, Doctor Strange, and Don't Worry Darling. Don't Worry Darling, very brief. You know, it's like, it's Palm Springs mid-century aesthetic. I thought I would love it. It was so stupid, the twist. Like, it was just just dumb. And then was complete Swiss cheese by the end of it, where I was like, wait, no, none of this would actually make any sense. But the other films that I... I really found disappointing slash in one case very much hated were Empire of Light, which did get nominated. I love Olivia Coleman. I love watching her. I think she's incredible. This film was three films in one and could not decide which one it wanted to be. So it's very competently shot, but you felt for most of it like you didn't even really know where the emphasis was and the whole thing felt like a wash. So that was disappointing. The Whale I actually thought was straight up offensive. Somebody described it as body horror, and I think that's very accurate to how that that went down. I also felt that it has that kind of like Sontagian kind of camp where it it's the seriousness that fails. Like that final scene, and everybody who's seen it knows what I'm talking about, was so tortured and so like, I guess there's an open question about if it was Aronofsky's aesthetic that I think like kind of takes over that that movie but it was so absurd that I was literally cackling in the theater at the end and hoping that other people would just think I was racked with sobs because it felt like really cruel and awful to laugh at the end of that but I think that I could never have been as cruel as that film is to its main character which I just thought was it felt very bizarre and the whole thing I just did not enjoy at all or think delivered anything that felt very fresh or frankly even interesting and has been nominated for a number of awards which i still don't entirely understand i went into the whale attempting to watch it in good faith i watched it on a screener and i heard you know the conversation around it which is completely valid but i there was a part of it that felt i was a little frustrated because one thing that did not seem to be a component of that discussion was the fact that Samuel Hunter, the playwright, had written the play when he was like over 200 pounds. And I thought that authorship or that biographical piece of information was important to understanding or engaging with the film. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, this is as bad as everyone is saying. Ooh, this is the wrong person to do this movie. It is shot with such an intrusive eye. It is made to look like the worst slob you could ever imagine. And in its efforts to humanize him, they just make him so much more an object of ridicule and of pity in the most condescending manner possible. So that was bad movie. And also, like, everyone else in the movie is not very good either. Like, Sadie Sink is terrible. She's giving a one-note bratty child performance. And I don't... There's nothing in her that makes me understand why Brendan Fraser's character is so attached to seeing her as some sort of beacon of goodness or kindness or anything of that. And I understand that like a lot of her actions are supposed to invite that contradiction or that awareness of that contradiction, but there is nothing, no subtext there as to where that belief is coming from. So I don't think... I would say you can't pay me to watch any more Darren Aronofsky. You could pay me, but no one's offering to pay me, so I'm not watching any more. 
until I feel like I'm going to get something in return besides the experience of getting to see any more of his films. I just, I'm not a fan. And I'd heard a lot of bad things about this movie. And so it just was gratification that I didn't have to check it out, even though I'm really rooting for Brendan Fraser. I've always been a fan since, you know, the 90s mummy, and I want him to succeed. But I want not a, the cost of me having to watch The Whale, you know, like, pass. Well, that's, I think, an actually a very interesting tension is like what because I, I feel you on that. There's like wanting to see this actor who has been through a lot and who I think for a number of us, like I was thinking of School Ties was one of my like favorite films growing up and The Mummy, of course. And I would love to see more of him. I don't think this is the kind of performance that like I would like to see rewarded, I guess, is what I'm saying. May I defend Don't Worry Darling for a moment? Yes. Yeah. Please. Okay. I think that if Don't Worry Darling didn't have like all the delicious gossip surrounding its release, <laughs> and if Olivia Wilde weren't such an obnoxious public personality, this movie would have slipped under the radar and it would have been like your perfectly forgettable but entertaining mid 2000s adult drama. It was very dumb. But I think stylish enough to be passably entertaining. I think Kate Boulant was very good in it because she is in a completely different movie. And I <laughs> fair. And it's got a banger soundtrack of like a little doo-wop Motown stuff. It's fine. It is not the worst thing I saw last year by a long stretch, but I thought it was passably entertaining. Like I could if I drank wine, I would drink wine on a Friday evening and watch it. I watched it too, and I will say I didn't want that time back. I didn't want that time back. I liked the time I spent looking at the clothes, and I liked the, and I liked knowing all the stuff about the smithing, and like I liked having all of that with me on, like you know, you a lot like popcorn on one knee, like all the stupid gossip on the other, and you're just like eating a little from each. And I mean, it didn't qualify as full camp, but you're right, Eric, that there's a sense that like at the end, there's this just frantic desire to make it make sense and it's kind of i know it's not meant to be funny but it's a little bit funny like olivia wilde's character like quick let me give you backstory this is really sad also this is it doesn't make any sense go go like she's like run away because you're technically because you're running away from bad guys but really it's because like this doesn't make any sense and i need you to run run away from the plot holes run and that is just like i would rather i would say like that I would rather watch that than a movie that's impeccably done but doesn't give me feelings. Like, at least I had feelings when I was watching it, like giggly, silly feelings. Like, oh, this is fun. Yeah. I would rather watch that than The Whale. Oh, my God. I'd rather watch Don't Worry, Darling many times than watch The Whale one time, from what I've heard. Okay, so while we, as we wrap up, let's roll through at least, like, four categories and say who we think will win or who we think should win. So let's start with best lead actor. And for those playing at home, I'll just give you that it is up for contention are Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inisherin. I didn't say this before, Kyle, but I also loved that movie. Really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser, The Whale, Paul Mescal, After Sun, and Bill Nye for Living. So who do both of you think will win? I think Austin Butler is probably going to win. I've been reading that Frasier is favored. That might be wrong. I'm with Kyle. I think that Austin Butler will win this. And who do we think should win? For my part, I think Austin Butler should win because he really did, especially towards the latter 
parts of that film like completely inhabit the body and character in a way that I found pleasurable to watch. I would like either Paul Mescal or Colin Farrell to win. I think they're much more dynamic and interesting performances. I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't like Baz Luhrmann. I was not especially interested in Austin Butler's performance just because he just, he does what he can while being suffocated by Luhrmann's aesthetics. I'll try to keep this brief, but I have a lot of thoughts on this one. So I thought for a while Austin Butler at the time, but that performance has not stayed with me as much as Colin Farrell, which is surprising. But I think there's a quiet transformation in Farrell's performance that's a very loud transformation in Butler. And I just feel like one of them has stayed with me. Paul Mezcal, I saw After Sun literally last night. So I feel as though I need a month to see who has like to let it marinate and see which of their performances stays with me. I wouldn't feel bad for Austin Butler. I know he did a lot for that role and I was impressed when I was watching it. I'm just not sure that it, because it's a familiar kind of biopic transformation, it didn't stay with me as much as I thought. P.S. If he doesn't win, which he has been favored to win, I believe you're right. I would look at Baz Luhrmann because I think the last scene of Elvis, and I'm just like a giant spoiler machine today. Lerman puts in footage of the real Elvis Presley. He takes away that star moment from Austin Butler. And if Butler doesn't win, I might blame Lerman for maybe taking that Oscar moment and trying to put it onto like, you know, I want to show you how authentic I've been despite all my Lerman flourishes when he should have let Butler have his, let him bring it home. I think he could have done it. He did it the whole movie. All right, let's jump into I should also note that I need to watch After Sun, and I did watch Elvis just last night. So I think I may be also that was the last one in, first one out or something for me. After Sun is a slow drip. I felt like as I was watching it, I was like, what is this movie? I don't know what it's doing. I don't know. And then at the end of it, you're like, you feel like you, rather than just be like hit with something, you've had like a slow, like you've been inhaling emotional carbon monoxide or something. You're like, God, I just feel woozy at the end of this movie. There is also some strobe lighting and some shaky cam, so beware of that. I need to rewatch it because I was expecting to hit be hit by a wave because I also have daddy issues, and I was hoping. Good movie for that. It's great. Yeah, that. Oh, I was hoping that I was going to be overwhelmed with feeling, but then it was just like, oh, okay, that was interesting, and I admit that I was somewhat confused because of the strobe lights of like who a certain character was in those shots. But now that I know who it is, I think I should rewatch and maybe I'll be more taken with the film. Although I do think it was quite impressive and I thought Mexico was quite good. I mean, we could also then be seeing the rise of another trend alert, Irish men on screen between Colin Farrell and Paul Mescal. Some great, like, you know, just rooting for my own home team here. Oh, no, that would be terrible. More Colin Farrell and Paul Mescal. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Who wants that? <laughs> yeah. All right, <laughs> let's jump into Best Lead Actress. Again, for those playing at home, we have Kate Blanchett for Tar. I think I feel like I know how that's going to turn out for this crowd. Anna de Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yao for Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Who do we think will win? I'm going to be wrong about all of these, but Blanchett. I think Michelle Yao, just because of the dynamic range that was required by that performance. I think that's the toss-up between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yao. I think that the narrative is in Michelle's favor this year. Because Kate Blanchett won recently enough 
for Blue Jasmine, which was what, like 2012, 2014 or something. I always picture these ballots and the ways that people divide them up because I've seen those blind, you know, then when people release the ballots without saying who it is who filled them out. And I, I think my guess is Blanchard because I think that everything everywhere all at once is going to take some other major categories. And so I feel like they're going to toss it to Blanchett for that. But I, I mean, like, I hope they don't. I hope they give it to Michelle Yeoh. She's who I want to win because I think she is the heart of that movie. And I think that that movie really works for the performances more than any other aspect, even though I'm not positive it will, I think, supporting actors a lot. But I think that like other, I think that to me, what makes that movie work is not some of the screenwriting is good, but it's a little quirky. You know, like I think for me, the actors ground it. The actors make it work to the extent that it works. I think it works really well. But I think even people who didn't love the movie will acknowledge the performances are what makes it work. Like, what does work in it is because of Michelle Yeoh and because of her co-stars. I do think she should, Michelle Yeoh should win. And I think it's the film's strongest point or the film's strongest component is the fact that it takes Michelle Yeoh's star persona, the fact that she's been, she's had such a varied and wide ranging career and literalizes it to be this like cosmic screwball thing that she's able to jump from persona to persona and from character to character and life to life. So I, I would like to think that that would be recognized because her range in that film and over the course of her entire career is the thing that is most, I think, beautiful about that film. All right, so we'll move on to Best Directing, and we have Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inisherin, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, a.k.a. The Daniels, for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, and Rupert Ostlund for Triangle of Sadness. Who do we think will win? I think the Daniels are going to win. Daniels, yeah. I agree, and actually, I think they should win. Having not seen The Fablemans, and you guys have definitely like gassed me up about it, so I'm definitely going to watch it. But just in terms of what it must have taken to direct a movie like that that is doing so many different things, not to try to play too much into the title all at once, I thought was like very, very virtuosic and deserving of the award. What about you guys? Yeah, I would be cool with them winning. I think I would be touched to watch Steven Spielberg accept that award for that particular movie. But then I feel like he should like take himself out of the running for a few years. Like this was a special (laughs) project for him. It was very important. We loved what you did with it. But like you then you're going to go back to regular movies. You're not I'm trying to say not that it would be like a charity Oscar, but it would be almost like a lifetime achievement Oscar. And then you need to slow your roll, Steven, because maybe we need to let younger directors come in and, and get their chance too. But I would be happy with the Daniels. And even though I didn't like Tar, if Todd Field wins, I would respect that he did what he set out to do, even though I didn't want it to do it. I feel like Tar is a better play probably for cinematography. That's yes. like the yeah. category that I'm looking for that to get some love in rather than director. And I think Martin McDonough will win for screenplay. That is, That's fair. Yes. That I think that yeah. he will not win for direction. And I think that his movies, even when I like them, they do feel very play they're very speech heavy it's a very beautiful movie the banshees of Sharon. but if it wins for screenplay i think that it's getting an award for probably what is the strength of it apart from i would say colin farrell's performance i would be fine if the daniels win best director i'd be fine with it ideally i think my favorite directed film is probably not even 
nominated. My ideal win would be Laura Poitras for All the Beauty of the Legend. But out of the nominees, I would be happier if Steven Spielberg won because I think that is a better film. I agree. And I actually do think that Laura Poitras, who we interviewed recently about all the beauty and the bloodshed. So the listeners should definitely check out that conversation if they hadn't heard it already. It's a beautiful documentary. And I think that it should win for best documentary for all the reasons that you were saying earlier, Kyle. It just it gets such I mean, that's what Laura Poitras does. She gets these incredible, intimate, really deeply embedded portraits of people at a pretty intense moment in their lives. All right. So. Drum roll, please. Without further ado, let's get to best picture. So we got a laundry list here. All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Banshees of Anishiran, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Which movie do you guys think will win and which should win? I think Everything Everywhere All at Once should, and I think it will win, but I think it would be hilarious if... Top Gun one, like I would, it would be like watching another slap or something. You would be like, <gasps> like I would just freak out. I don't know what it would say about the future of America. Like that, that kind of militaristic love story would win Best Picture right now. Like I'm not sure what it means. I enjoyed it when I was watching it, but I, I know what I'm being fed. But I think that would just to me looking at this list, I'm like, yeah. I mean, some of these are definitely not going to win. Like even if they're good films like women talking is not in the conversation you know elvis is not going to win avatar is to try to bring in people who saw avatar like so there's only a few but i feel like the only one here where i'm thinking it couldn't win except if it did and it's top gun truthfully doesn't have any acting or directing nominate you know like but it was that would be hilarious and strange but not impossible not impossible. But I think everything everywhere all at once. If we were putting money on this, that's the one that will win and also the one I want to win. I agree. I do think it's the one that will probably win. And I would be fine with it winning. Although of the nominees, I'd prefer the Fablemans. That's what I was going to say. I also think that everything everywhere all the time will win. I do think it should win having not seen the Fablemans. But the Fablemans is another one that I think is kind of the top next contender for that title. I just know what the reaction to if the Fablemans were to win, I just know what the reaction is going to be to that and everyone's going to sort of take that at its face value of it being a movie about movies and solidifying or cementing Hollywood's love of itself and sort of the meta cinematic aspects. And I am, again, disappointed with the way that the movie was pitched or sold to audiences because I think it is a way more interesting movie than something like The Artist or The Shape of Water or Empire of Light. I think it has a lot more going on in it than just, you know, a love letter to itself. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. This has been so much fun. And everybody listening at home can now see how right or wrong we were in our estimations this Sunday when they watch the Academy Awards. But thank you so much. I've been joined with Annie Burke, LARB's film editor, and Kyle Turner, critic and writer. Thank you both so much for joining me. This has been a blast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. You've been listening to our special 2023 Oscars preview with Annie Burke and Kyle Turner. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.